is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you think the water problems here in Southern California with drought and calls for conservation are rough, we assure you the capital of Mississippi has it much worse at the moment. Parts of Jackson are without running water right now as flooding exacerbated problems at two water treatment plants. We'll go in-depth into what is happening and how bad it could get. Millions of people in L.A. County are being asked to stop outdoor watering coming up for roughly two weeks. It has to do with fixing a very important water pipeline. And the U.S. sees its first confirmed monkeypox death. This is the World Health Organization. Sounds optimistic the virus can vanish in at least one part of the world. U.S. government says it's getting a lot more complaints about airline travel now than before the pandemic. The president getting ready for a big-time speech on Thursday, how he looks to be trying to help the Democrats this fall. We'll talk about that. Supporters say two bills on the governor's desk can maybe help with the state's housing shortage. And if you think people in L.A. are rude, new survey finds there are several other big cities that are way worse than us. Are we rude? I think we're pleasant. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm from New York. People so I enjoy think, us. I think everybody is pleasant compared to New York. People enjoy me. <laughs> <laughs> we start with the lack of water in Jackson. With us is Walter Grayson, reporter for WJTV in Jackson. Walter, thanks for being with us. How bad is the situation there? It's the epitome of the rhyme of the ancient mariner where there's water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink because hmm. in the middle of flood, we have no drinking water. Uh, it's inside the city limits of Jackson and then a couple of peripheral cities that get their drinking water from Jackson. Uh, outlying areas, they're fine, but probably about 180,000 people here inside the city. Well, yesterday, for instance, there was no water pressure. And now we're back on the ball water notice again inside the city one more time. So what happened to lead to this? Actually, the water system going all the way back, it's... Uh, I think it's it's a victim of its own success. It ran for years and years and years and had no problems. Uh, so therefore, there was no maintenance done to it. But when it finally failed, and this was during the ice storm of 2021, rare cold condition here in this part of the country, a lot of, uh, of the uh, water mains burst because of the cold water that was entering into them. That was the domino that started the whole system failing, and it's been failing for over a year and a half since then. Uh, as soon as they get it back up, something else breaks, and then they, it'll get that back up, something else breaks. But even prior to the flood that we just experienced this past weekend, uh, we had been under a ball water notice here inside the city for a month. Yeah, why, why is that? I mean, for a month, as you just said, you guys had to boil drinking water, right? But that was not for the uh, flood. It was for what reason? No, that, the flood actually uh, caused a whole new set of problems, and, and that was just recently, just over this past weekend. Back before that, it's just uh, water intake problems, filter problems, pump problems. It's just a myriad of different things that they just, it's, it's the perfect storm. It just, they just all went out at one time. So does the word frustration even come close to cutting it for people who have had to deal with this for, for this long? If you can make frustration into a four-letter word, I think you got it, yeah. <laughs> well, walk us through briefly, Walter. What is life like in terms of from a practical point of view? So people in, in Jackson, they get up in the morning. How do they do anything? How do they brush their teeth? How do they, they swallow pills if they need to take medication? How do they do all that stuff? Well, fortunately, the city has worked out with several generous donors who have brought in pallets of water to distribute these to people. You have to go by and pick them up. Uh, at the fire stations and places like that. 
but you can have drinking water if you're diligent enough to go by and pick up a case of water. They'll only let you have one case at a time, but that's enough to keep you going through the night and into the day. Uh, they are trying to distribute now some uh, water that you can actually you know, like flush your toilet with and things like that because this is gone. When you, when you didn't lose the water pressure, you could still use the water for things like flushing toilets and what have you. Uh, it just you know wasn't good to brush your teeth. Uh, but when you don't have no water, then you need something, you know, to put in a bucket and throw down the toilet. It's it's kind of like going back to grandma and grandpa's day when they lived out on the farm and, you know, the the, the toilet was outside or something like that. <laughs> I, it's really, it's it's nothing we've ever experienced before. And it's unusual that you wouldn't think that in 2022 that you'd be going a month in a major metropolitan city, the capital of the state, and have more water notices. The mayor, by the way, just had a news conference a few minutes ago, and uh, his estimate is that it would take about a billion dollars with a B to put the system back in order. And to give you an idea of how outlandish a figure that is, in the uh, new infrastructure bill that was just passed, the entire state of Mississippi gets something like $75 million with an M for all of our water system problems in, in the entire state. And then here we're talking about, I think it, 200 million to get us up and running and then a billion to really put it back in order. Walter Grayson, reporter for WJTV there in Jackson. Walter, thanks. Right now, though, Southern California has its own water concerns. There's the drought and recommendations to conserve because of it. Now people across L.A. County are being asked to stop outdoor watering from September 6th to September 20th with us to Explain exactly why is Brent Yamasaki, Water Systems Manager at the Metropolitan Water District. Brent, thanks for being back with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, so, thank you. Good afternoon. Yeah. So uh, for people who may be wondering and maybe they haven't, I don't know, heard, read, seen the news for the past few, I don't know, years, uh, <laughs> why do they need to be careful uh, about welcome the water? <laughs> yeah, Where have show. you been? <laughs> Why do they have to watch the watering uh, outdoors uh, during that time period? Okay, so yes, to your point, we everybody in Southern California knows that water is a precious uh, resource, and but these next two weeks, which start the day after Labor Day next Tuesday, we have a 15-day shutdown of one of the major pipelines that brings water into the greater Los Angeles area. It's called the upper feeder and it's been leaking since earlier this year. And although we were able to mitigate the leak with a temporary patch, uh, we've since manufactured our own replacement piece of pipe and we need to install it during the shutdown because we don't want to take any chances with the leak getting worse, which would be catastrophic potentially. Okay. So you go in, fix the big leak for these couple of weeks. Is this a scenario where now there's not enough water to go around or you're getting the water from someplace else and you just like for people to cut back? Yeah, so we have an alternate pipeline that can bring in a supply of water uh, during the shutdown. But because of the drought and the effects that it's had on the state, we have to conserve this supply. It's very in short supply. And so that's why even though we're making deliveries and people can utilize water in their households, uh, we're asking everybody to stop their outdoor watering for this 15-day period. And you know that there are people who are not going to, so that always leads to the question, and I'm sure you've been asked this, uh, what's the enforcement mechanism, if any? Yeah, so for a, a shutdown like this, it's very difficult to put enforcement mechanisms in place. Really, this is, we're educating the public, we're, we're um, 
talking a lot about the importance of this shutdown and we're depending on the public's help on this. So there won't be any, any fines or, or other penalties like that over the two week period. Frankly, it's, it's just too short of an amount of time to implement something like that effectively. But if my neighbor is just watering their lawn all the time still, will you poke or prod them? Actually, we're working with our local agencies that uh, deliver the water into the household. Metropolitan is the regional wholesale water provider. So our customers are the cities and member agencies throughout the Southland. So we're working in partnership with our member agencies, which are the cities and water agencies that deliver to individual households. Is there some sort of a compromise for people who are just going to say, no, I, I'm not going to let my lawn get all brown and ugly because of this. Is there something they could do uh, in the short run, maybe, I don't know, water a fewer number of hours or whatever, that would still help you guys, but also help their own lawn? Well, what we're advising folks to do is, is that weekend before uh, the shutdown, which includes Labor Day, is to give the yard and your trees and plants a really good soak. And so our, our goal here is to have people stop watering on the day after Labor Day for the 15 days. And there are many other things that people can do. Uh, when you're heating up the water for your shower, for instance, you can catch that water in a bucket and use that to water your sensitive plants like vegetables and such. Grass, even though it'll turn brown, it's sort of like when your, your sprinkler breaks and you don't know about it, but a piece of your yard isn't being watered for weeks until it turns brown and tells you that something's broken. You fix the sprinkler and it turns green again. And so I think that's very important for people to understand. Uh, we met in Burbank and they hosted a press conference for us today and they're doing something quite innovative. They're actually accessing, providing access to their recycled water at a park where their customers can go with buckets and tanks and fill up with recycled water uh, that isn't part of this um, um, water use reduction. And they could use that recycled water then to water their plants and, and yards and trees. Brent Yamasaki, Water Systems Manager at the Metropolitan Water District. Coming up a bit later, President Biden will deliver a primetime address this week focusing on democracy, but is it really just a way to slam Republicans? And a new survey ranks the rudest big cities in the country. L.A. made it to the top 10. Well, it's a good thing we're in at least the top 10. <laughs> We've got to be competitive. Absolutely. All right. Right now, though, the World Health Organization says it thinks it's possible to eliminate monkeypox in Europe. As is the case counts are slowing down in some countries there. Comes as the U.S. just reported its first monkeypox death in a person in Texas. Dr. William Hasseltine is chair and president of Access Health International. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So slowing down or eliminating it maybe someday in Europe. What about here in the U.S.? Well, first, let's talk about Europe. Uh, they have vaccines. Uh, this is a lot better than the COVID situation where vaccines uh, against one of the vaccine viruses work against many. Uh, the reason we have a smallpox vaccine is that the cowpox or vaccinia virus uh, protects against smallpox. And so that's very good. The same virus seems to protect against monkeypox as well, vaccine. So that's uh, the good news. Also, the good news is there's a high degree of awareness in the community greatest at risk of the dangers. After all, they've gone through four decades of HIV. So there's a lot of awareness of sexually transmitted diseases, uh, both in Europe and in the United States. 
We're busy rolling out the vaccines as fast as we can. We're stretching them. Supply was limited, but we're doing a pretty good job of stretching them. So I think it's possible to control it here. It's unfortunate that already 18,000 people in the United States have contracted it, but uh, I think we can we can put this one to bed if we're very diligent. Now, up until today, uh, people kept saying, uh, well, at least we haven't had any deaths from monkeypox in this country. Well, we can't say that anymore. Are you surprised? Uh, I'm surprised it's as, uh, as little lethal as it is. Uh, I'm not surprised someone has died. I should make a distinction, died with monkeypox, not necessarily from mon- monkeypox. I haven't seen the pathology report yet. Um, but certainly somebody who had monkeypox died, they were severely immunocompromised, at least what I've seen in the uh, lay press. So we'll have to wait to see. But it is a lethal virus. People do die of this. Um, the thing that I worry about is pox viruses have a nasty habit of getting worse. Um, and that clearly we've seen that with monkeypox that was well contained for decades. It got a little bit worse, and now it's spread around the world in 90 countries, 18,000 people plus in the U.S., and now in death, at least with uh, monkeypox. So uh, I worry that uh, it stays the same and doesn't get worse. You know, we're right in the middle of COVID, and we see that it gets worse, not better. It gets more infectious, not less. Let's just hope that doesn't happen with this one. That's okay. the continue quickly as we can. Okay. Now, let, let's shift our focus to uh, COVID and the pandemic, because I know you're on top of that as well. And, you know, there's a new study that uh, out of Israel it, that found that uh, Paxlovid, that, which, of course, is the COVID treatment uh, from Pfizer, reduced hospitalizations and deaths in older patients during the Omicron surge in Israel, but made no apparent difference for patients under 65 at high risk for severe disease. Why, if if that study is meaningful, why would that be the case? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a puzzle, and I think one of the reasons is that, as we know, older people in general are at higher risk. Their immune systems just aren't as good. Everything kind of runs down with older people, including their immunity, uh, and they've always been at the highest risk. If you look at who dies of COVID, it's the older people. So fewer people who are being infected, who are younger, are dying. And so uh, I think that's one of the major reasons this drug has very little effect in younger people that have stronger immune defenses um, than older people. That being said, this is not a very powerful drug. Yes, it's saving lives for older people, but it doesn't prevent infection. And I can tell you personally from taking the drug for 10 days, it didn't get rid of my virus until I didn't clear it until 12 days. So I took the drug and many people have taken it. Um, They say that rebound occurs in a small fraction of people. That's just not so. Everybody who knows people who are on uh, Paxlovid knows that you get rebound. So it's not a great antiviral drug. It's better than nothing. I'm glad we have it. I wish we had more. And I think we've got to do a major effort to get more and more effective drugs because our vaccines are not stopping transmission. They're not stopping infections. They're maybe slowing transmission a bit, but not very much. So we really need the kind of drugs we're now getting with HIV to prevent infection extremely well. We need those drugs and we need them now. Dr. William Hasseltine, Chair and President, Access Health International. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. 
Uh, some breaking news here. Russian news reports say former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has died. Gorbachev led the Soviet Union from 1985 to 1991. One more to come right here on the station. Um, flying has been an unpleasant experience for many people, and we know this for a lot of reasons, because, uh, I don't know, we've experienced it, we watch the news, and now the U.S. Department of Transportation tells us so. Releasing data showing the air travel complaints in June were up 270% from the pre-pandemic levels. I am shocked. Oh, my gosh. I'm just How could absolutely this be so? I, I know. And this comes as the airlines canceled thousands upon thousands of flights since last spring. Can we expect more of the same? I think that's a rhetorical question. <laughs> Joe, Joe Brancatelli is... We'll a, all come back in 2025 yeah. and see if it's better. <laughs> Joe Brancatelli is business travel and airline industry analyst, founder of the business travel advisory site, JoeSentMe.com. Joe, welcome back. Uh, I I'm the king of the rhetorical questions, well, what is, uh, Charles. So. What is a rhetorical question, right? I mean, to say, is the airline service going to be horrible in the next few months? The answer is obvious. Yes. Right. Well, weirdly, no. No. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Is it is it your no to my yes or your yes to my no? In the next few months, it will get better. Oh, because because we're now remember, Charles, we're looking at figures for May and June. So the government will keep reporting how bad it's been in July and August. But September and October will be better because volume will be down. Fewer people will be traveling, and fewer people then can complain. But that doesn't mean it's good. It's just it won't be as it won't continue to get worse. The news will get better, and actually has been getting better in the last couple of days. Well, it's better relative, though. I mean, if we're only a hundred percent higher than we were before, and not two hundred and seventy percent, it's still terrible. Yes, Mike, it's still terrible. Uh, although these DOT numbers on on passenger complaints are a little tricky because they depend on a passenger actually being um, angry enough for long enough that they go home and then file a report. It's not something, you know, they don't they don't have monitors. It's not like exit polling where they have people at the airport saying, oh, did you love or hate your flight? It depends on the passenger's reaction later and their willingness to go file a report. Um, today, today, right now, um, the Washington area airports are all on ground stop because of bad weather. Certain number of people will go home and blame the airlines for that. And it is actually the airline's fault, but we could talk about that in a different way. Um, but many will not. So uh, remember, we're looking backwards. This is sort of like looking at the Hubble telescope. Uh, so we're looking at May, June, July, August, which, is, which have been awful. Right now, if you go to the airport after Labor Day, it will be a little better. But I guess here's what what people want to know, meaning me. What, what happens when uh, the airlines eventually get to next uh, summertime, when people are again going, uh, hopefully on vacations, because maybe we won't have yet another pandemic to to deal with? Uh, are we going to then have a repeat of what we've been through the past few months? And what will the excuses be a year from now? They're not going to be able to say we don't have enough staff at that point, right? They've been training pilots. Yes, but I'm not, I can't worry about next year, Charles. I really can't. I'm worried about Thanksgiving. Okay, so how about Thanksgiving then? Thanksgiving has the opportunity to be epically bad. The 
kind of stuff Hallmark would write a movie about where three people are stuck at the airport and two of them fall in love, <laughs> you know, for, for days. Um, and the reason why Thanksgiving is always the flashpoint is it's the only day of the year where everybody has to be someplace at, some, at the same day. It's a secular holiday. Everybody celebrates it. Many people feel compelled to go home wherever their home is for the holidays. So everybody wants to be at table on Thanksgiving Day. And the airline's telling you, well, we can get you there Friday. doesn't quite work. So that's what we look at next, Thanksgiving. And word to the wise, if you can avoid traveling on Thanksgiving this year, don't. Yeah, because there's a whole bunch of conversations between families right now wondering, should we Should we go? Should we try to stay close, stay at home, take a road trip? Just, just don't this year? I, right, because, again, this is a family holiday that everyone celebrates regardless of race, creed, or religion. Um, it's not even like Christmas or New Year, you know, or Hanukkah or, or any, any of the other holidays um, where you can spread it out. So the, focal, the entire airline industry has to work to get, I don't know, 2.5 million people a day to some destination by Thursday. And guess what? It never quite works, even in the good times. Uh, the bad times, as we've been living through, you know, will be pretty tough. After, I think, what will be a fairly decent September and October. But you know as well as I do that that we can tell people till we turn blue in the face, you know, maybe if you don't have to go or, or you don't want to go through the hassles for Thanksgiving, just sit this one out. They're not going to. They're going to go to the airports and they're going to all want to be back home or back with family and friends for that one day. You're quite right. Uh, and and so there's, it's it's almost like watching a a slow I was going to say train wreck in this case I guess it's a plane wreck uh, of of what you know is inevitable it's going to be horrible. Well, and and the problem is Charles I think it's exacerbated by the fact that while 2021 wasn't quite as bad certainly no one there were very few people traveling in 2020 at the height of the pandemic even last year uh, there were still enough pandemic concerns where people didn't travel. So as bad as the summer has been, and as we say, we're looking at 300 percent increases in this little snapshot. You know, I think I think we'll be on the we, all three of us will be together in a month from now talking about how bad July was when the dot numbers come out and how bad August numbers come out. Thanksgiving could be a massacre. And um, all we can say to people is really try to use your better judgment. Um, you've missed people. You, maybe you've missed family for two years. Maybe take a pass on another one. People will do what they do, and it's America, and they have the right to do it. Joe Brancatelli, business, travel, and airline industry analyst, founder of the site JoeSentMe.com. President Biden now going to deliver a prime address Thursday outside Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The White House says the president will discuss how the country's standing in the world and its democracy are at stake. This comes ahead of November. The midterms, Democrats gaining some momentum, a chance to maybe keep the House or at least uh, keep the Senate or break the tie in the Senate. Jonathan Lemire, White House bureau chief for Politico, host of MSNBC's morning news show, Way Too Early. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. So the president making the rounds, talking accomplishments. Now comes this speech. And there was also that recent poll that showed pretty high on the list for voters was, you know, concerns about anti-democratic things out there, practices, worries? Yeah, no question. For a while now, the White House has tried to frame this upcoming midterms election as a contrast between the Democrats and they're pointing to their record of, and surprisingly busy record of late of getting things done legislatively and trying to paint Republicans as a party of extremes outside 
and out of touch with mainstream Americans on issues like guns and abortion. And now they're adding this one, the idea of, of democracy. Uh, we, we heard from the president, just he wrapped up a speech in Pennsylvania just a few minutes ago talking about how he believes Republicans have not supported law enforcement because they have not actively condemned the January 6th riot. Uh, and certainly Thursday night, uh, which in many ways Democrats believe will be the kickoff, if you will, of the final stretch before the midterm elections. The president tried to make this contrast in big sweeping terms, saying that the soul of the nation is frankly on the ballot this November, uh, and indeed saying that Americans' rights and freedoms are attacked, not just at the ballot box, but indeed with undemocratic uh, actions, like potentially even threats of political violence. Does he mention Donald Trump by name? Aides are being very cagey about that. As you know, Joe Biden does not do that very often. He does loathe to mention Donald Trump's name. He has occasionally done so. What he prefers to attack are MAGA Republicans, and he did invoke Trump's by name last week in a speech in Maryland, which was seen as, frankly, one of his more decidedly offensive attacks on Republicans in quite some time, saying that MAGA Republicans even were semi-fascist. So aides that I talked to just a few hours ago uh, say right now they're still going back and forth on the draft as to whether Trump's name would be included. But certainly, even if the words Donald Trump don't appear, Biden will take square aim at his predecessor. Is there some undercurrent here that's like, OK, even if you're not a Democratic super fan uh, or you're worried about what the progressives will do, it's like, oh, well, we're not as bad as 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 those guys, as some of the Republicans who are saying, well, that election was a fraud. So pick us. Yeah. One of Biden's favorite sayings, which he attributes to his father, is don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Uh, and that is sort of been his their Democrats mantra all along. They understand that they're not everybody's cup of tea. But they say, look, even if you disagree with us on some of the issues, we at least still stand for America. They paint the Trump MAGA faction of the GOP. And, and, and Biden is always quick to say that's not every Republican. But he says those Republicans that are in line with Donald Trump, that's un-American, that they're being undemocratic. So, yes, that's the appeal they're making to voters, saying that, look, you and I may disagree on some of the issues, but we at least stand for the same things. Is the timing of this particular speech because we're getting closer to midterms? Is it because the president's poll ratings are, I guess, slightly improving now in light of some you know, significant legislative achievements or both? The answer is both. I mean, all along, the White House had been mulling over what to do, how to signal sort of the start of the stretch run before the midterms. And we're about uh, 10 weeks out at this point. Labor Day is usually when most Americans start paying attention to uh, the upcoming election. But they also sense that they have some momentum and they want to capitalize on it. They come off a very busy summer. We just noted a bunch of legislative accomplishments. They feel like there's voter energy among Democrats because of the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And they also want to capitalize on Republicans struggling right now, struggling because of the way the January 6th hearings brought the insurrection back into the headlines and struggling because of the fallout from the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago and Trump being back in the news seemingly every day, every hour, every minute. And Democrats have long felt that the more the conversation is about Trump, the better it is for them. Yeah, the former president overshadows a lot of the positive Joe Biden news. But to that point, I mean, the more he's in the news, it's still better for Democrats in the long run. That's what they think. They don't mind that at all. Uh, you know, they, that was, frankly, how the 2020 election played out. You know, Joe candidate, then candidate Biden was largely content to stay out of the headlines to sort of give policy proposals and say and 
paints himself as the somber, serious alternative to the chaos that he said was unfolding at the White House each and every day. We all remember Trump's flailing response to the pandemic that year. Uh, and, uh, you know, then his later his suggestions that the upcoming election would be uh, conducted unfairly. So they think that a principle still applies. But if the headlines are about Trump, that's bad for Republicans. And they also feel like Trump's handpicked Senate candidates in a number of states across the country, they're in real trouble. And that could give Democrats the edge in the upper chamber as well. Yeah. Is it more likely that they, the Democrats, keep the Senate than, than keep the House at this point? The, uh, strategists on, from both parties that I speak to say yes, that they think that right now, I think the Senate is considered a toss up but slightly lean Democrat, again, because of the weakness some GOP candidates uh, have, you know, whether it's Herschel Walker in, in Georgia or, you know, J.D. Vance in Ohio, we can, like Masters in Arizona, we can go through the list. Uh, the, right now, the Democrats feel pretty good about the ability to at least maintain that 50-50 tie, which would, of course, keep control. And those close to Senate Minority Leader McConnell expressing real pessimism and frustration. They feel like the Senate might be slipping away from them. The House at this point probably slightly still leans Republican just based on the fundamentals of the election and some redistricting, but it's getting close. A few months ago, the conventional wisdom was the GOP would win the House in a landslide. That is no longer the case. If the Republicans take it, it'll probably be just by a couple of seats. And there is a chance now, seemingly unthinkable outcome a few months ago, the Democrats might hang on there too. Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico, host of MSNBC's morning show, way too early. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russian news agencies reporting the last leader of the Soviet Union has died. Mikhail Gorbachev, his office said earlier today he was undergoing treatment at the hospital, 91 years old. Yeah, Gorbachev took over as Soviet leader in 1985 when tensions were very high between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, that was President Reagan during his famous speech in West Berlin. That was in 1987. Gorbachev then helped ease tensions and usher in a short era of goodwill of sorts between the West and the Soviet Union before its demise in 1991. With us now is Robert English, Director of Central European Studies at USC, author of Russia and the Idea of the West, Gorbachev Intellectuals and the End of the Cold War. Robert, thanks for being with us. Um, during the Gorbachev years, uh, I was doing a series of, of reporting for a New York newspaper uh, in Moscow about Gorbachev and the changes, perestroika, that he was bringing about in the then Soviet Union. And I remember talking to lots of people in Moscow and, and elsewhere, and they were so hopeful for change. They were so hopeful that the Soviet Union was going to sort of join the ranks of of sort of Western, you know, countries. They put it Western civilized countries. Uh, We can talk about what happened in the aftermath. But from your point of view, what is his legacy? Oh, my goodness. It's an enormous legacy. I think he gets the lion's share of the credit for ending the Cold War, although President Reagan's contribution was vital. Um, it's pretty clear that Gorbachev had to overcome much fiercer opposition and transform his country um, much more radically. It was very touch and go. He could have been removed at several turns. There was a failed coup attempt against him in 91, and somehow he 
shepherded through all of these liberalizing reforms, not just cutting the weapons and ending the Cold War, but also giving his people democracy, uh, freedom of speech, freedom to travel, uh, unprecedented transformation. And it's just so poignant that it's all come full circle under Vladimir Putin, who has pretty much with this war in Ukraine finished undoing all the good that Gorbachev did for Russia. Yeah, because now you can find this contingent, right, that says, well, you know, look, he gave more freedoms, but look what happened. It all collapsed. And, and there's there's like a regret there among that kind of camp. There is. And certainly a lot did go wrong. Um, but Gorbachev is not the sole author of these failures. You know, Boris Yeltsin, his successor, the entrenched corruption, um, the breakup of the country because of fierce nationalism. You know, at this stage, in my looking back over that period, I've come to think that nobody could have pulled it off and kept that country together. It was just too fatally flawed. But uh, he did the best he could. He gave his people a chance at freedom, a chance at democracy. And as you say, brought the country into the civilized Western world only for it now to retreat. So what happened, do you think, then to the Russian people? Because as I mentioned, you know, the, the couple of years that I was there on and off doing stories, uh, you know, he, he was kind of, he, he was a hero. I mean, he had his, his face on, on T-shirts. I remember you, you'd walk down the street and you would find uh, the Arbat, the, the main avenue there, right in Moscow. You would find souvenirs with, with Gorbachev's face plastered all over it. And if you go back, maybe a year or so ago, he's not very well liked by the population, is he? No. Um, you know, I think in hindsight, many people have concluded that maybe it would have been better not to reform, or at least not to reform so quickly, even though at the time they relished those freedoms, the chance to travel, the chance to start a private business, the chance to form a political party, to vote to enjoy Western freedoms. Nevertheless, many people look back and say, we weren't ready for that, or it was too much too fast, and it all fell apart. And so the same people that praised him for what he gave them now often blame him. Of course, again, um, those who came after him are the ones who really fouled things up, um, because he fell from power when the Union collapsed at the end of 91. So we really need to look to the 90s and what mistakes were made by his successors, especially Boris Yeltsin and his team, rather than blame Gorbachev. And Gorbachev said something very poignant to me once. He said, I'll be judged. He said, I am invested in Boris Yeltsin's success, even though he despised Yeltsin, because if Yeltsin succeeds, then my legacy will be success. If Yeltsin fails, then they'll blame me, too. And that's what happened. Robert English, Director of Central European Studies at USC and the author of Russia and the Idea of the West, Gorbachev, Intellectuals, and the End of the Cold War. Well, some cities across the country have a reputation for being rude. Most of them are on the East Coast. People talk fast, walk fast, don't have time for friendly small talk. Uh -uh. Get out of the way. Yeah, none of that. It's cold, too. So that doesn't put anyone in a good mood. <laughs> it's nice and warm here. Yeah, too so maybe warm. We're better. Maybe too warm. A new survey from Preply ranks the rudest big cities in the country. Number one is Philadelphia, they say, followed by Memphis, New York, Vegas, Boston. L.A. is ninth on this list, just ahead of Houston. Some of the most common rude behaviors involve problems with driving and being disrespectful in public. With us is Diane Gotsman, etiquette expert who runs the Protocol School of Texas. Diane, thank you for being here. 
I'm reading through this and, and I find it interesting. It's not like people voted for the other rude people when they've been people were ratting on their own cities. Like, well, that's rude. They said that my city is rude. I think so. So Philadelphia people ranked Philadelphia as the worst all on their own. But Diane, isn't that rude? <laughs> well, maybe this is just this is just a sign of the times. Which you know what, every generation says that. So this is really not knew any of this information that they rank rude, we all see it regardless of where we live, You know, even if we don't live in these cities. So it's not new behavior. <laughs> so what do we do with it? I mean, why are we so mean to each other? <laughs> well, okay. The I, I don't have a crystal ball of why everyone is mean, but the these cities, as you know, are tight quarters, small spaces, busy people, fast-paced world, and they're in a rush. And, you know, oftentimes our behavior in general just elicits other people to be angry with us because we get off the subway, uh, we barge through, people are storming the door, we have our subway tickets, and we stop right in the middle and block people. So there are so many different things that each one of us can do individually to make it easier to be plus to, to be pleasant to us, and I think that we we can only be responsible for our own behavior. And I think we need to think about that. Now you're in Texas, right? I'm in Texas, okay. and you know we made Austin and Houston made the list. I know, and but LA Austin made the polite list, though. Yeah, Austin what? did. That's right. Houston was the bad list. So which one? List. Which one are you? <laughs> yeah, are you, are you the are you the bad Texas or the or the rude or the good Texas? No, but but it also shows that L.A. that we're ruder than you folks in Texas. Do you think that's true? You know, I'm going to tell you these. This is a list, and what was it? Fifteen hundred people or two thousand people? That is not that big a number. But I have been, and I'm sure you both have been as well. I've been to every single one of these states, and I'm. I've experienced good, and I've experienced bad, and I've experienced that in my own backyard. So I think that it really comes down to okay, yes, the East Coast is a little gruffer, a little more brusque. That's their that's their demeanor. Um, but it doesn't mean that they're it's just it's just the way they speak, you know, and then a child is brought up by somebody who has that same type of of speech pattern, but it doesn't make them bad. It just makes them quick. So I, I've encountered the kindest two two places, New York City and Boston. They've made the list. Two of the kindest experiences I've ever had, one in New York City, one in Boston. So. I just think that we as individuals need to watch our P's and Q's. And I don't mean that from a cotillion standpoint. I mean, let's get <laughs> off our phones. Let's, you know, focus on the other person. Let's be courteous, smile rather than scowl. Uh, I think that'll make a big difference. And if they don't smile back, so what? Yeah. So it didn't hurt us. You still Let smile. Let people merge. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you. I mean, some of this depends on which behaviors we're picking out. Like you can drive and frequently around here. Yeah. Rude people on the road. But also, you mentioned the phones. Like, if people are texting all the time, not paying attention, well, maybe that's rude. Maybe someone at the gym has a speaker instead of their headphones on. That's rude. Like, all so of these rude. things could go on the list. Yes. Every one of these. And we've experienced, living in these cities or not, we've all experienced every one of these, probably more often, uh, you know, than not. So I think that, you know, keeping your earbuds on, keeping your not putting people on speaker, you know, the other person doesn't know they're on speaker and they might be saying something confidential. Uh, listening when people talk to you rather than looking down at your phone. If someone says um, good morning, say good morning back. But if they don't, let it go. 
<laughs> let people merge but, in traffic. If there's a crosswalk, let them stop for them. That crosswalk means you know, stop, pause, so that person can cross. Well, since, since we're talking about about uh, car travel and, and 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 traffic rudeness, I think is relative, right? I mean, I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm from New York City, where people honk horns constantly. When I first moved out to L.A. a good number of years ago, there was this uh, little cute old lady in front of me who insisted on going like two miles an hour. So I kept honking my horn. Eventually, we get to a red light. She gets out of her car, comes to my car, knocks knocks on my window, and I can hear her saying, young man, that is absolutely rude. And I then this rolled down my window and yelled out an expletive, and I said, no, that's rude. And then, and then she went back into her car and continued to drive two miles per hour. Making so, friends, huh? Yeah, but it's, but it's relative, Making right? Making friends in high places. <laughs> but but my, my point is rudeness is relative, right, depending on where you're from. It's not but, universal. Right. Honking is rude. Okay, honking. Now I oh. know, and I know what you're saying. And, and I frequent New York. What about like a little, like a little boop boop, like a little tap instead no, of laying I was, on the no, horn? No, I was a laying like a little courtesy honk. Yeah, no. with your knee. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it, it, the taxis are the cabs are honking. That's expected. But I, I'm going to urge you not to honk anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. Now I feel bad. <laughs> I know she's still living here longer. Too. Are you honking less you. now? Huh? <laughs> Living here longer? Are you honking less? Or are you still no, no, still on that thing? No. As soon as the uh, the light turns green, <laughs> in fact, a second before it turns green, I anticipate it, ready, and I'm on the horn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll work on that. Diane yeah. Gossman, etiquette expert, runs the Protocol School of Texas. True story. And yeah. and, and and I I'm not going to say the word. You can imagine what it was. <laughs> And she went back to her car and continued to go two miles right, an hour. Right in front of you. You changed right lanes. She's me. right there, too. I could not get around uh-huh. her. Could not get around her. All right. That's in depth for today.